stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite World Talk radio shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept, and one we will explore today on the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Collin talking to you from warming up Arizona. It's going to be way up in the high 90s today. And you know, we don't mind that. It's only when it hits like 120 that we begin to get a little nervous about the weather. Uh, our hearts go out to those who have been so affected by the weather across the Midwest who have lost so much. Uh, you know, if we have anything to send, we will. And certainly our thoughts and prayers will be with those people who've been so, so damaged by the weather. Today we have a remarkable guest. I'm going to start out by saying some things that you might think are a little strange. When you're born with a name that's known to the world, you might have a little trouble forging your own identity or dealing with the prejudgments about you just because of your last name. I had a little experience with this when my husband was in the United States Congress and the State Senate. He was on the news all the time, sometimes quite controversial, uh, and the name was in the paper a lot. And people, because they saw his name, thought they knew me as well, and often what they thought of me was really so way out there. It was just unbelievable, and I had a little struggle with that. It was a small taste. But when your name is associated with one of the wealthiest men on the planet, you're defined and pigeonholed without ever having a chance to define or defend yourself, especially when you're a kid. So I want you to think about it. I want you to think about your own reaction. What do you think about when you think about children of people with names like Rockefeller, Gates, Hilton? The term often brings to mind the phrase, spoiled rich kid. Now, let's be honest about it. You don't ever hear the term spoiled poor kid, but I know a number of spoiled poor kids. I mean, kids are kids. We assume that they have everything handed to them, and we assume that they must be spoiled, and nothing may be further from the truth. It's a prejudice, just as harmful as any other prejudice we hold about people who are different from us or whose backgrounds are different from ours. There are many ways to be wealthy, and money is only one of them. 
And in learning about today's guest, I know he's rich in so many ways, and they don't have anything to do with money. He says in his new book this, No one asks to be born. No one gets to choose his parents or to have a say in the circumstances of her birth. A life may begin in a snug and comfortable bedroom in an American suburb or in a straw mat in a mud hut in West Africa. The parents could be residents of a Park Avenue penthouse or homeless people barely surviving in a public park. They might be healthy or they might be infected with HIV. They could be athletes and scholars or crack addicts and criminals. They could be parents in a committed couple for whom parenthood will be partners, I'm sorry, in a committed couple for whom parenthood will be one of life's high points. Or they could be virtual strangers out on a date completely indifferent to the consequences of their actions. The range of possibilities is practically limitless and these happenstances of birth will of course affect those new lives in profound and complicated ways. But allow me to state something that, while obvious, is often conveniently overlooked. People born to good parents in advantageous circumstances don't deserve any credit for the situation. On the other hand, people born to bad parents and in poverty don't deserve any blame. How could they? We aren't even innocent bystanders, let alone active co-conspirators, as our particular birth lottery is playing out. We don't even exist yet. Clearly, then, at the start of our lives, no one deserves anything. I urge you to get this book. It is so filled with wonderful, thought-out wisdom that I'd hate for you to miss any part of it. The man who wrote that is Peter Buffett, and yes, he's the son of the well-known investor and philanthropist Warren Buffett. I almost wasn't even going to say that because he stands on his own. He began his career as the musical mind behind many of the early MTV bumpers of the 80s. And I find that really funny because I really didn't like MTV back in those days and wouldn't let my kids watch it. <laughs> the climactic crescendo uh, in the memorable fire dance scene in Dances with Wolves was written by Peter. And if you don't remember that movie or haven't seen it, go get it, watch it, and just bask in that portion of it. He's authored a best-selling book, which was recently released, the one we just read from. Its title is Life is What You Make It. Find Your Own Path to Fulfillment. I love that title. Peter's, Peter's story is not a riches-to-riches riches story. It's the story of a talented man who stayed true to himself, true to his dream, and walks his own path over the bumps, detours, and dead ends that we all have to walk through as we go down life's pathway. It is such a pleasure for me to introduce to you Peter Buffett. Peter, welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you so much. What an introduction. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Now <laughs> Sometimes I, I do it. overkill, but... Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Now I have to live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you. We all have our own ideas about what it 
would be to grow up with a father who's known for his vast wealth. Tell the listeners your side of the story. What was it like growing up as Warren Buffett's son? And I know the wealth wasn't there when you were, were a little kid. Well, exactly. And, and to tell you the truth, if you walked in the house right now, you'd see pretty much what I saw in 1965 or any time. Uh, because it's, first of all, the house I grew up in. He still lives there. Uh, there's no fence around it. There's no, you know... Uh, limos and yachts and extra houses and all this stuff. He, the the key really was that he was doing something he loved, and coincidentally, given his birth, the timing, uh, the wiring in his brain, all these things, uh, in this particular place, uh, he was able, or it happened that he made a lot of money from what he loved to do, and I think that's the critical piece: is his actions. Uh, spoke volumes when we were growing up because, uh, well, first of all, we didn't know what he did. <laughs> we, that was, it was kind I, I of, love that. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a story about my sister in grade school filling out a form and saying that my dad was a, a security analyst because that's one of the one thing you could call it. And everybody thought that he checked alarm systems. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, that's how far removed we were from you know what was happening. Uh, we walked to public school. I had the same English teacher my mother had in high school. Uh, my grandparents lived two blocks away. It was a very classic uh, Midwestern upbringing. I, I joke about the fact that my, my great-grandfather's name was Ernest and his brother's name was Frank. So I come from Frank and Ernest in Omaha. Oh, that's, that's wonderful stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It's your mother I fell in love with as I read your book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your mother and how she, you know, I was completely taken with the way she taught you about religion and spirituality. Give us some of the stories about your mother and what she did for you to help you see all sides. Yeah, she was such a core component, as mothers are, in child rearing. And uh, it was great because my parents had the same core values but expressed them in, in almost opposite ways. It was really beautiful in that way. And my mother... I mean, I would walk home for lunch, you know, from grade school, and there'd be somebody at the table that was uh, almost always a different color, and and most often certainly from a different part of town or even a different country or city or something. And what was fascinating is is how my mother would uh, ask questions to get stories and to learn. You know, she really uh, showed me that everyone has something to teach. You know, that that you that listening. Uh, and and questioning and and uh, you know really learning from that is is core to understanding yourself, understanding humanity, uh, and leveling the playing field really in terms of what you think you might know about someone else. And she did that with religion as well, and and spirituality and faith. You know, just the idea that uh, you know I, in high school she took me to a synagogue and to a, the Salem Baptist Church and to. Uh, you know, our Presbyterian church, and, and she had books on Buddhism around the house, and just, it was very clear, uh, again, by her just exposing me, not by telling me these things, really, just the exposure and the experience showed me that there are many paths to meaning, essentially, to, you know, trying to look towards something to, to create meaning and, and faith in the world. So uh, she was uh, an extraordinary teacher. 
It seems, and this is just what I got from the book, that what your parents taught you was how to look at an issue from every side and come to your own conclusions, your own decisions, independent of what anybody else told you you had to think. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, my parents showed that in, in different ways. My mother certainly in the active participation in conversation and that sort of thing. And my father in this quiet, focused uh, attentiveness to his own approach to things, you know, and not moving to Wall Street to follow some fad and not, you know, just being almost like a monk, you know, in his room doing his thing the way he knew was true to him. And he didn't need... You know, the the validation, in a sense, was the money. That's the only thing that told him it was the scorecard. It could have come in any form. It happened to be in, in his line of work, the money. So he didn't care about the money other than it told him he was on the right track in terms of his ability to identify businesses and markets and that sort of thing. But it was a very slow, patient movement towards something that was deep in him. Uh, and to see that in action, you know, again, people can tell you these things, but to to see it is what uh, it makes the biggest impression. So now, to, now we're going to get completely off of any questions that we thought we were going to talk about. Um, two things come to my mind here. One is, when did you realize that your family was really quite wealthy, and, and did that change anything for you? Uh, it didn't. Uh, it did later, but at first it didn't, and I didn't really realize it until I was in my 20s, <laughs> which was sort of... Wonderful. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, my, when my dad uh, did this big deal with ABC Cap Cities in 80-something, 80 86 or 85, that made him kind of jump off of the financial pages, which he really wasn't on that much anyway, but it kind of put him into the consciousness of more people. Then he started to rise in wealth and hit these lists of the most wealthy people and all that. So, and my mother and I would laugh about it. It's like, wow, you know, people are giving us points for being normal. You know, people used to say, you're Warren Buffett's son, you're so normal. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I be? But, but again, this whole thing that you talked about in the beginning, these assumptions uh, around what we didn't see other than some organic growth of some guy doing what he loved, and it turned into this, uh, it, it was fascinating. It was only when I moved to New York uh, about five or six years ago now, the financial capital of the world, essentially, when, it, you know, it would be like being in Washington, D.C. and your dad being president, sort of. It, it was a, yeah. a whole different take on it, or being in Hollywood and your dad being some famous movie star. So that shifted it some. Uh, but by then, I was old enough. I had my own life. It didn't it didn't get to me. If I was 25 and that happened, you know, it, it probably would have been a little bit of a struggle. Are, you know, in your college days, if if everybody had realized that could have been a little difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in my 20s, you know, when I was developing my music career, everybody thought I was related to Jimmy Buffett. You know? Oh, so, hey, but, that could have an advantage there. Yeah, which is kind of funny. So it, it never, Warren never came up. <laughs> The other thing, and I want to leave this with you because we're going to go to break in just a moment, but the other thing that came up for me is watching your father do work that he so loved and became so successful at it must have put some seeds in you to find what you love to do the most. Absolutely. And I want to discuss that a little bit more when we come back from break. We're going to go right now for a brief break. We'll be back. So stay tuned. (laughs) 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? If you are dealing with chronic illness or a disability, at times you can feel lost with nowhere to turn. It doesn't have to be this way at all. You can become an active participant with your doctor in the healing process. Tune in to A Healthy Way to Be Sick with host Mark Lerner. Mark has developed techniques to make your healing a partnership. Each weekly show will cover four main topics and how you can take steps and hear from experts that know the value of patient participation. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You are tuned in to the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. I'm glad you're back to join me with my guest, Peter Buffett, because he has so many really interesting and wise things to say. Before break, we were talking about the influence his father had on him because his father was so in love with what he did and was so good at it that the wealth just naturally followed. And Peter, I think, as I remember in your book, you did some searching to discover what you wanted to do and I tell us about how your father influenced your search for the perfect thing for you to do well he really always as did my mother say you know do what you love I mean and of course you can say it but if you also see it all the time that helps a lot so I did not see my father come home you know mad at his boss or you're miserable and just working for the weekend kind of thing you know he just Loved it. So I saw that. And when he said, do as I do, it was not, uh, you know, banking, finance, investments. It was do what you love because that's what I do. You know, so that was a, a much, you know, the, the meta message was way better than, than having something uh, that was specific. Uh, and that was made so clear. And so, and the funny thing is I, I played piano my entire childhood. I loved the piano. I heard songs in my head. I'd make up songs. I took lessons from different people and just really enjoyed it, but really didn't think about it as a career. And so I went off to college and took everything that ended in 101 or ology. <laughs> I took every <laughs> intro course known to man and, and loved it. You know, I thought, this is great. I, I went to Stanford, and I thought it was a great privilege to go to a great school, and I should take all these things and learn, and maybe something will really emerge. And, you know, it wasn't until 
after the geology and astronomy and sociology and you know, on and on. All and of those. A year and a half in, and I thought, oh, my God, it's been music. Why? How did I miss that? Uh, although I can sort of deconstruct that, too. I understood why. You know, I, I grew up with a friend in high school who was so good, I just never thought I'd be good enough, which those doubts, you know, they play in all of our... Oh, I, that, oh, I'm not good enough thing. Yeah. Yes, I know that one. Absolutely. So I really didn't take music seriously because I just didn't think I was good enough. And it was when I heard someone playing guitar in a dorm and was so moved by the simplicity and soulfulness, you know, that, that boy, if you pick the right five notes, uh, that's all it takes to, to reach someone. And I thought, you know, I think I can do that. <laughs> that's That's a different thing. And... Uh, so I embarked on my career uh, with my parents' support and consent and, uh, and, and really worked at it. So you didn't feel the pull or the need to go in business with your father or do what he did or any of those things? You no, didn't. I mean, I really, again, felt that, that I, and my father certainly feels this as well, that we do the same thing. You know, we do what we love. And that was the pull, is to, I got to make sure I pay attention to that. And uh, when I started to get into music, the other thing that my father would do occasionally he loved the glenn miller story the movie oh yeah and he loved it because glenn miller was always trying to find the sound and so my dad would say pete have you found the sound and you know what what he meant was you know what's your voice who are you what's what's gonna what's your brand i mean in you know in a business sense what how will people know that it's you and i and and that's what he found he found his sound and investment and so i knew too that he was continually kind of reminding me that it's great to do what you love, but do it your way. You know, do it so that your unique qualities are infused into it, essentially. And that's what will make it your own and, and feel great and, and be great in the world. So, Now, I've just got so many questions that just keep popping into my mind here. Um, you make this statement in the book, all the head starts and connections are not enough to ensure success if talent and passion are lacking. With talent and passion present, you know, which one's the most important? Talent or passion? Passion for sure, because you'll, you'll work at getting the talent <laughs> if you have the passion. You've got to have both. I mean, there's no question that you have to have some uh, uh, take on, you know, some, you know, some natural ability, I think, in some ways, but a lot of that can be developed. And if you're passionate about it, uh, you can you can get there. And and I also remind people that, you know, I did not think about okay, I want to go into music, I want to be a pop star. I thought I want to make a living making music. <laughs> it's a much wider net. Yeah, I want I want music. <laughs> and and same is true with other. Fields, you know, if your passion is dancing and you just don't have the talent, but you love it so much, then and if you happen to have a talent for numbers, then you go get an accounting degree and you are an accountant for a dance company, or you start a dance company because uh-huh. you're into small business, you know, development. Or you get on Dancing with the Stars. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are many ways to follow a passion. I think if you too narrowly define what the outcome should be you you could be missing a, a huge part of, of you know the experience and you may miss something you don't even know exists if you don't take a look behind the the doors yep yeah 
but music is uh, the music industry is not an easy one to break into. And you got there through MTV, which I think is just so fascinating. Tell us about that. Well, that was one of those doors, you know, that you talk about. It was really me uh, looking behind every one of them to see if there was a potential job because I was, you know, 20, 21 years old looking to, to get work. And I did a lot of different jobs. I was recording a lot of other people. I was learning how music was made in the studio and uh, I was literally out washing my car one day, and uh, it was a new neighbor next door, and and he said, what do you do? I said, I write music, and he said, you should meet my son-in-law, because uh, he does these little animated things, and they always need music. And, you know, again, keeping your ears and eyes open to any opportunity and, and stepping into it, because... Uh, you know, with music and with almost anything, you're not sure if you can rise to whatever potential opportunity you're being presented with, but you got to give it a shot. And so I did, and I was paid $1,000 for 10 seconds of music, and that was great. <laughs> so That's good salary, but how many, how many hours did you put into writing those 10 seconds of music? Well, a lot. I mean, you know, for sure, especially at first. You know, obviously, that's the, the craft part of it, is you keep doing it and doing it, and you get better and better. Uh, but you put a lot of hours in, and uh, and sure enough, unbeknownst to me, and this is another lesson here, is that you don't look at what the outcome might be and, like, one job might be better than the next. You do your best at every single one of them because you never know who might hear it, who might move on to another position and hire you for something else. I mean, I always wanted to do my best, and, of course, those ended up to be MTV little 10-second interstitial commercials. And uh, at the time, I didn't know that MTV would be anything other than some obscure cable channel. Uh, but once it hit, then, of course, all the advertisers, because this is the way of the world in commercials, they just want to look and sound like whatever's popular. Exactly. <laughs> MTV was popular, so therefore I was hired to do a lot of commercials, and it really jump-started my career. Now, it's interesting to me because I have absolutely no talent in this line. And I've heard almost every successful musician say they hear, they hear it in their mind. They hear it. It plays over and over in their head. How does that work when you have something you're commissioned to do as opposed to something you're hearing in your head and you don't quite know how to bring it out or where it fits? Is that something that musicians go through? Well, it can be. It depends. You know, that's sort of art versus commerce, right? So I look at the art as the things you hear in your head and you want to try and make real. If that is truly, I feel, spirit moving through you, you know, where you're just, I don't know where it comes from, I, and you just try and catch it and, and make it real in the world. Uh, the The commercials are the craft. I mean, literally, a client could walk in the studio and sit there (laughs) all day (laughs) until you give them what they want. And uh, so that is that's the real craft of it. Saying, okay, this is satisfying, and and that's the other key to it for me was that I recognized I was in a service industry. You know, I was not an artist in an ivory tower. I was in a service industry (laughs) when I was writing this music, and to keep that humility, really, to say. Is this right? And if it's not, what can we do to make it right? You know, for the client, is really critical. 
So can you get as much joy, and I sense that you get a great deal of joy from your music, but do you get as much joy from a, a commercially prepared piece and that you see the customer smiling and, and happy and pleased as you do when you've produced something that comes from your soul? And here you can, you're, you've got it, you can see the score in front of you, you can hear it being played, you know, yeah. Is it different? It's different. Uh, there's certainly a satisfaction in a job well done uh, in the commercial side, and in some ways, both of them. I mean, it's this is a different kind of job. So, yeah. you know, there there's that satisfaction of having. To me, it's like solving a puzzle when it's a client and a and a particular service you're trying to provide. Uh, and with the more artistic side, uh, the true art side, it's it's a different kind of puzzle. I mean, it's really sort of two sides of the same coin in a way because you're you reach a level of satisfaction, but there's a fullness when you've actually pulled something in that never existed before, and and it's touching people in a way that goes beyond selling a product. Frankly, exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're touching someone's soul, that's a little different than triggering a gee. I think I want that. I'm going to go buy it. Could have had a V8. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so you started out in MTV, and and then where did you go with your music? Well, for probably almost the next ten years. I really worked hard on the craft of commercials because it was a great way to make a living, frankly, and and it was challenging and fun. And I started to uh, create a parallel path where I thought, you know, if I can make music selling a product, I would love to make music to tell a story, you know, which is film and television. And and so I, I love being a part of something in terms of the music, uh, you know, but going from product to storytelling was something I, I, I really wanted to pursue. So Which brings us right up to Kevin Costner and dancing right. with <laughs> Exactly, yeah. And so I knew that making records was a way to reach directors and film editors and things like that. I was very fortunate to get uh, into a record deal, got some records out, and then Kevin Costner heard my second record, and that really uh, led to a huge next step in my career. Which one was your second record? Was it? Did it have a Native American influence in it? Well, it was called One by One. And what happened is, and this is another great lesson, really, is that my uncle said, you should read this book. It's really moving. And I had made my first record, and I was looking for something inspiring to kind of get me going on my second. And so I read this book. I figured, why not? And it was called Son of the Morning Star. It was about Custer and the, the battles in the West in the late 19th century. Uh, and it just moved me beyond belief. And so this record, while it wasn't Indian-sounding in terms of the instrumentation, it was infused with the emotion that I came away with after reading the book. Uh, okay. uh, and somehow Kevin heard that. <laughs> I think he's very sensitive to the Native American influence as well. I, I, I don't think. I know that. You can tell that from what he does. When we come back, I want to talk more about this, but it's time for us to go to another commercial break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more from Peter Buffett. Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword World Talk Radio. 
What's missing in your life? Do you feel like you've lost your identity? Are you trying to cope with a loss in your life? Are you trying so hard to be a people pleaser? Stop! Invest some time in Dr. Marla Sloan's program, Mind Over Matters. This program will help you find the answers to these questions and more. Dr. Marla's passion is to help people to be the best they can be. And this program does just that. Tune in to Mind Over Matters with Dr. Marla every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are a parent of a child with autism, you know that there can be day-to-day struggles emotionally. Now you can share insights and outlooks with the Mother Cub Show. Your host, Susan Lynn Perry, a parent of a child with autism, will bring a new perspective to the subject from diagnosis to effective treatments that are working. Her guests will include professionals, authors, and individuals that will bring wonder and hope to the world of autism. Tune in to the Mother Cub Show, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. Join me and my guest, Peter Buffett. We were talking before the break about how he began to write music for commercials and then has done some records and wanted to do a movie score. So let's talk about a little bit how you came in contact with Kevin Costner. That's a great story. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And, you know, as I'm reminded as I tell these that it really is these circumstances where you can't plan this. You know, uh, Steve Jobs, I think, said that you can only connect the dots in retrospect. And it's very exactly. true. You look back and go, oh, that's how this happened. And for me, with, with Kevin, it was really making this record. So I had a very deliberate strategy to try and get to people like Kevin, but I didn't know who it was going to be or when or how. And so when the second record came out, uh, I literally, I was watching Entertainment Tonight, which I hate to admit, but it's true. And uh, <laughs> uh, and they were talking about this movie about Indians that, that Kevin was making. And because my second record was, you know, infused with some of this stuff, I thought, boy, I should get my music to Kevin. That would be great. And I thought, boy, you know, I know how hard that is to do, to get music to anybody and uh, then I had remembered that I had gone to school with a guy who had married a woman whose father was Costner's <laughs> agent's best friend. <laughs> and, and that's how it worked. So my, my cassette at that point of music wound its way around these relationships to lunch uh, with Kevin at one point. Not me, but the music was given to him at lunch. And he fell in love with it and asked me to score the film, actually. And... This was also a lesson in be careful what you wish for because I had never scored a film and he really wanted me to do it. And we went back and forth and he had strong feelings that, that somebody new would really you know, bring something to the effort. And so we went back and forth and then there was a realization from really the people that were backing the film. They said, look, this guy's never 
scored one before. You've never, Kevin, you know, directed. Uh, this is yeah. uh, this is three hours. It's about Indians. It's subtitled. You're crazy. And uh, so I didn't get it. But he held out a scene for me and asked if I would score that. And and uh, it was extraordinary because it ended up being the scene that was so pivotal in the film. Oh, it was the key scene in the film, and it's wonderful. Yeah, it was really, uh, you know, it's called the fire dance scene where Kevin dances around the fire, and it really was his transitional moment, transformational moment, really, in the film. And, and in fact, it was transformational in my life, too. (laughs) And it brought you into a whole new way of writing music, didn't it? Or a whole new avenue of expression. Yeah, it really did. And it started at that moment, and then Kevin's friend... Uh, asked me to score the whole series of 500 Nations, an eight-hour series about the North American Indian nations. And uh, Kevin was executive producing that. And that was really a a way to get me from these two minutes and Dances with Wolves into a full expression in so many ways of uh, American Indian music and working with artists and storytelling. And, And that shifted... Uh, my music probably for the next 10 years, actually. And, and before we go any further, what I, we have not done is told people how they can reach you or hear some of this music. Peter is so generous. He's got his music on his website, and you can hear it right there, and it's wonderful. Um, just go to peterbuffett.com yep. and listen to the music. And while you're there... Click on the video, Spirit, the Seventh Fire. And if you don't find, if you you forget that, go to the self-improvement blog. It's on the front page of the blog. It is one of the most moving pieces I've seen in a long time. How did you come to do this? Is this part of the work you were just speaking about? Yeah, really what happened with 500 Nations is I met uh, the chief of the Shawnee tribe in Ohio, uh, Hawk Pope. And Hawk's voice in my music just was a marriage made somewhere. <laughs> and, and, uh, oh, is he the one that's narrating this? Yes. Yeah. Oh. And, and his singing voice as well, which is also in the track, some of them, uh, and his spoken voice and just his wisdom, we really connected, uh, and he taught me a lot and really sent me on this journey of developing a show around uh, really... It's it's using the native culture as a stepping stone to really any of us. You know, the the bigger message is you can't know where you're going unless you know where you came from. And the fact that we are moving so fast and forgetting so many important things about our roots and our ancestors and our connection uh, and and native culture seem like the perfect uh metaphor living metaphor really for that and absolutely when my husband was in the congress he represented the navajos the hopis all the tribes in arizona and we have a lot of them more more tribes i think than any other state and one of the things that people talked about is how important it was to get these indians to change their beliefs and and believe like we do and i'm thinking hey wait no 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 (laughs) (laughs) everything in me was hurting over that and 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 people still believe that and we've just got to get them assimilated into our culture and i want to say please don't listen no, exactly. I mean, actually, the opposite would be more correct, and it's really an opportunity 
that was missed a few hundred years ago. You know, when the country was founded, certainly the French were intermarrying and and being more uh, a part of the tribes. And in fact, part of the reason that the Louisiana Purchase happened is because there was essentially another country starting to form along the Mississippi with the trade route and the relationship, the intermarriage and all that with the Indians. And and, uh, it was a very different way of life and and true connection to the earth and to spirit and all of that. And so it is, and that's true of any indigenous culture. It's happening in China now. You know, it's happening anywhere where progress is being made at a at record pace uh, to lose a lot of what's been here for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, You not, wonder if that's really progress, don't you? Well, it isn't, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, and that is, it's, it's awful to see, but at the same time, it is evolution, and we will move through whatever period we're in, and uh, things that have always been around will be around again. So it's Th- That is true. You know, the reason that we booked this show is to talk about your book. We probably ought to mention that you've written a book. Yeah, right. Uh, Let's, what inspired you to take on such a project? I mean, you're busy with your your work, you're busy with your music, and now you take out time to write a book, and that's not an easy thing to do. No, and I really, it was a total surprise. It was another one of these things where I was asked uh, not too long ago, now it's probably, could be six or seven years now, to speak to, frankly, you know, to wealthy clients of uh, Citigroup and things like that, where I was this, sort of exhibit A of a, a kid <laughs> that, that had a normal life. And, you know, how did you do that? People were so curious about how it was that I wasn't um, somehow crushed in some way uh, by assumptions and burdens of, of a dad with a big shadow and all these kinds of things. And so I would speak about this and just my, a lot of what we're talking about now. And uh, then I said, look, I'd like to perform if I'm going to speak because that authenticates the story. That makes it more of an event and, and, and more true. And so I came up with this thing called a concert and conversation and started to play and speak. And somebody saw one and said, that's a book. And I'd never thought uh-huh. of that. But I thought, what an interesting way to help spread this message that seems to be resonating across more than just wealthy parents. You know, it seemed to speak to anyone looking uh, mostly in transition, you know, looking for a fuller, meaningful, happier life that had nothing to do with outside material things. Yeah, you may recognize this, but what people really want to see is authenticity. And from my perspective, you have that authenticity. Well, thank you. I mean, that's what I saw in my parents, and that's what I was uh, kind of was infused into me in terms of a value, uh, kind of a core value. And and I also found it was the easiest thing in the world to be. <laughs> it's like, you know, I was doing these shows, and, I, you know, I really didn't perform publicly at all until recently, the last five years. And And when I started to do it, because I was doing it in this way, I wasn't putting on some mask to go on stage. I was just being myself. And I thought... How, how much easier is it than to just be yourself? But we're taught to, to put on these masks and to behave differently because then more people will like us or we'll get more stuff or we'll whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. Your father joined you in one of those, didn't he? Did I he see did. that somewhere? Yes, there's a YouTube clip of my dad uh, playing ukulele, and uh, I'm on piano, and actually Akon, who is a, you know, it's the strangest trio you'll ever see in, on the planet, uh, is uh, doing a little beatbox thing on his on the microphone. So yeah, it's oh, quite that's. A... <laughs> it looked like you were all having great fun. We were most definitely. <laughs> you know, one of the things you talk about a lot in your book is giving back. Your father is a great giver backer as yeah. well. Uh, how, how you know? T- talk about that just a little bit. I don't even want to frame the question. Just talk sure. about giving back. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny because it was in me in different ways through things like the Spirit Show. I felt like through my music and, and what I could create, I could give back uh, in in some way, you know, in terms of meaning and and connection to people and, and that sort of thing. So that, that was happening anyway, and I like to remind people that philanthropy means the love of people. You know, it's not about a lot of money. So no. you can practice it in many, many ways and and hopefully we all have it in us and I know we do. And so when my dad then you know, we always knew he was gonna give all his money away. That wasn't really a question and it never felt wrong at all. I mean I didn't feel entitled to his money. That was his success uh that came from that that should go back as he felt to the world that allowed it to happen. So the society that that allowed him to do what he loved gets the money back. <laughs> it's a pretty good deal, actually. It's a good deal for and, a lot of people. Yeah, and so uh, we knew that was going to happen. What we didn't know is is when and in what r- way we would play a role. So we, meaning my brother, sister, myself. And so when he decided to do it when he was still alive and decided to have us be uh, you know, a big player in that, that role, uh, it was pretty extraordinary and quite, again, humbling, you know, to take on this responsibility and opportunity. And it is a responsibility. And, and you know, how, how do you decide where to, put the, where to put the money, how you invest it so it doesn't run out, how you help people help themselves? It's such a huge, huge question. Yeah. Uh, you know, to to put all those pieces in place takes the mind of a man like your father and a man like Bill Gates, both of them so creative in different ways, to to put such a plan together. It's yeah, really it, awesome. It's there's so many good people doing good things, and to really set a strategy to where you think this is how the money's going to be the most effective and leverage the most because no amount of money can save the world's problems, you know, the world. Or, or no, there's the no amount. So it's really about how can we use this money in the, the most effective and efficient in a way, you know, way, which also means making mistakes. I mean, part of the the art of this is to allow for mistakes and no, because that means you're trying things on the edge a little bit. And, exactly. Now, with yeah. that thought, we have to go to our last commercial break. So stay tuned. We want to hear more about this from Peter Buffett when we come back. We'll be right back after this. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Peter Buffett. And I'm really sorry to see this last, last segment begin. I wish we were starting all over and had another hour. We were talking about philanthropy just before the break. Peter, what do you want to say to finish out the thoughts on philanthropy? Well, it really, again, does mean the love of people. And so my wife, Jennifer, and I really looked at these different ways we could put the money out there in the world and you know people talk about the environment and health and education and poverty and all these sectors really that are important to address and we kept looking at all of these issues and problems and felt that there was something systemic underneath all of them and it was much more about uh, what I would consider to be feminine qualities in terms of collaboration and nurturing and creativity and these various things that weren't allowed to really flourish in what's really a top-down society. And so we really felt, and we got a lot of encouragement from others, that supporting uh, girls and women would cross all those Ah, uh, wonderful. And, My Yeah, and, and My really heart only, is... only a girl will be the mother of every child, I remind people. so That's true. Yeah, you know, so my you... heart is with women's shelters. I just have such a heart for abused women. and yep. I never was abused, but I can't imagine that. No, no. And if, they're, if the women are supported and the girls are supported, again, the boys will come right along because the, the girl will have, you know, will be the mother. And, and so to give that support in the world, I think, is is an extraordinary thing. And how can people help you do that? Well, actually, we have one thing that we're doing that's quite large uh, called the Girl Effect. It's with the Nike Foundation. And if you go to girleffect.org, uh, you'll learn a lot, and there will be lots of opportunities uh, for connecting into the work. And we're really proud of that. We think we're we're doing some good things. We'll put something about that on the blog because I think it's a a really, really worthwhile effort. I wanted to talk about if you could do it all over, but you know what? I really want you to talk about just a last thing about your music because to me it's so moving. And, you know, I don't know. I can't put my finger on what your sound is that your father wanted to hear, but I know it when I hear it. I can't define it, but I know your music 
touches my soul. And I want our listeners to hear it as well. But, you know, how do you come with this? And your music, your music expresses something in you because in, in, on your, on your website, you've described what those pieces of music are saying. Right. Right. And it's, it's so profound in some instances. And I listen to it again and think, I miss that. Wow, wow, that's, yeah, well, thank you. And it really is, and I use what I do every day as a metaphor for life, really, And because in the recording studio, you try and get a strong signal-to-noise ratio. You try and get the strongest signal with the lowest noise. That's the goal, always. And in life, and this is true in my music, you know, I, I really try my best to get the lowest noise as possible. So in other words, the outside world, the expectations, the, the advertisers telling you you should buy this to be happy, your friends telling you you should act this way to be my friend, your, you know, all the things that are the noise. There's so much noise coming in. And, and if you can reduce that to uh, zero, frankly, but to a minimum and allow the signal, which is yourself, your soul, your voice, your sound, you know, your, your signal to come through that's the authentic you, right? Yeah, That's so your thing that your father was looking for is authenticity. Right, exactly. That's what I'm hearing, isn't it? Yeah, it's the straight line through all of this is just really paying attention to that signal, which is authenticity, it's yourself, it's your soul. And that, and if you can touch that in yourself, you can touch it in others. And that's what I'm thrilled when my music does what it does for you, you know, because that means that I've connected what's in my soul to someone else's and the closer you can get to your own it's no question that you're going to reach others it's just you know, sometimes i put your album wisconsin on i just get it from your website and i sit there and play it while i work there's something in that that's fresh and refreshing oh, and and then when i found spirit the seventh fire today it blew me away yeah that's that is probably the thing, if, if I'm proud of one thing the most, <laughs> I think that would be it. And, and if you get a chance to watch it, uh, the DVD, you'll be, uh, I think, quite inspired as well. So there's, there's a whole DVD. Is the whole... Um, the whole show, say? yeah. The, so that, sound, that is a soundtrack to a theatrical show that actually toured in a tent. And, and you can get that DVD, and it's called what? I've written it down here somewhere, 500... Well, no, Spirit the Seventh Fire. It's the same oh. as the CD. Um, and there is a DVD of basically all that music come to life. And I will see if yeah. I can find that. Yeah, that'll be on my website and Amazon and all that. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So it's it's new out then. Uh, it's been out for a little while. I actually created it in 2005. It probably came out in 2006, but it's been out for a little bit. And uh, but it's it continues to be found by people. The, the show is not touring anymore, so this is well. Yeah. Sometimes we find it late, but we use it long. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, it's there's it's not it doesn't go stale. There's no expiration date. <laughs> I want you to think a moment for the last thing you want to leave with our listeners, as I tell them about who's next week's guest. All next right. week. Guest is Jeremy Kubicek, who's president and CEO of Giant Impact, 
and the author of a newly released, I mean, it's really new, it's like a week old, book called Leadership is Dead, How Influence is Reviving It. And Peter, actually, I think this is a book right down your alley. It's really a great book, um, and I think he's on the right track. And he's talking about how we need to be with each other. And so listen next week to hear what Jeremy Kubitschek has to say. And now, Peter... What wonderful gems of wisdom do you have to leave with the audience today? It has been such <laughs> Well, I would say that that is it. I'm so glad that's your next guest because because uh, the what we have to get back to is what we've always had, which is community and connection and it gets down to love essentially and really trying to erase as much fear which we're fed all the time through television you know everywhere we see these very subtle and sometimes not so subtle fear creation (laughs) devices and it keeps it holds us back from you know what's possible and what our capacities are and so to and that's the noise again you know to get rid of that noise and to really follow your heart i mean anything really is possible and and actually, somebody corrected me once. I said, anything's possible. They said, no, everything's possible. Ah, nice <laughs> and, direction. Yep, yep. And I think that's very true. Peter, it has been such a pleasure, such a joy to have you on the show. Uh, I, I don't even know how to thank you. It's It's been an exquisite experience in terms of sharing your music. I thank you. I wish you everything the best, and we'll follow your career and we'll follow all the things that you do. So, you know, anytime you want to be on a show, you call me. You're on mine. All right. Great. Thank you so much. I really <laughs> appreciate so it. Thank you. Thank I'll, you. Send, I'll send your publicist the link. All right. Great. Thank you again. This is Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show saying come back again next week and hear Jeremy Kubitschek talking about leadership. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.